0: Hello and welcome to the Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. Our guest today is Milana Lewis, who is the CEO and co-founder of STEM. Milano, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I know most of the people listening to this podcast are pretty familiar with STEM and its role in the music industry. But if you could give us a quick 30 second rundown on what STEM is.
1: Sure. So STEM is a platform that does two big things today. It does distribution for independent artists and labels, uh, specifically for music and online video. And we handle payouts to all the collaborators. So when we started the business in 2015, we were the only company and distributor that enabled the uploader to input the splits on the song or the video so that all the collaborators could get paid directly from the revenue of the content. Um, So today, we've been around for about five years, and the big vision and mission of the business is to enable uh, creators to build sustainable businesses independently. And what we believe prevents them from doing so today is that many of them don't understand their value and don't have visibility into their finances. So a lot of what we're building moving forward are tools that allow them to do that.
0: One of the fascinating things to me, you mentioned you've been around for five years now. When I talk to people, it literally feels that in the streaming era, that was an eternity ago, just with how much has changed in the past five years. How has that been for you leading a company that relies on the streaming industry? How have you evolved as the industry has evolved?
1: One of the things that so many artists care about today and rely on for Discovery is playlisting. And since we started the whole culture around that, has completely evolved. It's funny, we were, one of my good friends is Mark Williamson, whose new company roster, uh, who has a new company, I should say, roster. He previously was overseeing global uh, artist relations over at Spotify. And we were talking about it and sort of like, how did this all come to be, right? And it was really interesting to realize that, you know, if you go back in time, right? So Apple buys beats. And Jimmy's over there overseeing it and really putting emphasis on human curation. And Spotify hears that because so much of their playlisting and curation was algorithmic. And in order to compete with that and dispel the rumor that Spotify's way too algorithmic, there's no human curation, and the reason why Apple Music has such a leg up is because there's human editors, they've got Zane Lowe, they've got all these people, you know, got Spotify to start investing in that. And so then you have a platform that's meant to completely democratize the barrier to entry, now putting humans back in the seats of curation editorial support, and again, not truly democratizing the ability for artists to rise, because now it became a game of relationships. So it's a combination of, you know, artist discovery is partially anyone could definitely get their music out there and give it a shot and get discovered and hopefully if they can drive their audiences to discover the music it triggers algorithmic um, ability to really support and rise that content but also if you know the right editors and you can get their attention and you can find your seat yourself on a plane sitting next to uh you know any big editor i don't want to name drop all of them And you get them to listen to your music, which I've heard so many stories like that. The reason why I say the plane incident is because I've heard a couple artists be like, oh, I was sitting on a plane next to so-and-so on my way to New York City. I got them to listen to my music. I'm going to get on today's top hits or Rap Caviar or all these other playlists. And that changes the game.
0: And that has to be like the biggest change, I would say, because when you had started, playlisting wasn't playlisting, right? So adding in this whole human layer you all started to put a bit more of a push towards playlist pitching and all of that once you realized that that's where the streaming push was going.
1: Um, I wouldn't say that that's where our emphasis is even today. I think the emphasis has always been about how do we communicate to our partners and our artists and our managers how they can drive discovery for their artists, right? So playlisting is only one of those levers. We see our role as really being not only technology and tools, but also education. And so, you know, early on, honestly, it was about how do we help these creators realize how to take advantage of all the tools and audience development best practices on YouTube to drive discovery, right? Because YouTube is a huge platform for music discovery. And that included skills that were relevant like SEO and leveraging, you know, all the tagging mechanisms and end cards and end slates and all these tools that YouTube made available. When it came to doing that on SoundCloud, it included things like commenting strategy. How do you use a tool to identify who your core fans are? And then with Spotify, it became how do you create a compelling story that can be pitched to editors? What do they want to hear? But then also, how do you drive passion indicators? How do you get your fans to engage with your music on Spotify that trigger algorithmic attention?
0: So it's understanding both the data differences between each of these, but also how do you use that to infer what engagement looks like and how to actually make an impact individually on each of these services. And
1: also then how do you know it's working, right? Right. What what is the data you're getting back? that gives you any indication whether or not there's traction.
0: And I think that one of the main selling points, and you mentioned this early on, was about the splits, specifically the royalty splits. And that isn't something that a lot of the other distribution services offer. And I would imagine that as the service, as the sector, rather, has gotten more competitive, that continues to be a selling point that you have over some of your competitors. Yeah,
1: there's definitely been um, platforms that have... uh, I don't want to say copied the functionality because it's not totally copied, but have developed their own version of splits, right? Um, But it's very different than the way we approached it and the reason for doing it. For us, it became about the fact that uh, the core constituency that we wanted to serve were artists that were collaborating with established songwriters and producers. And what inspired that for me was when I was a talent agent at UTA, I was focused on digital media, which meant I had my own roster of clients I signed that emerged from digital platforms like YouTube and Vine, etc. But I was also the person in the room talking to our established clients when they wanted to go direct to their fans and helping them figure out the platforms that they would use. And the conversation I would find myself in a lot is we'd meet with an artist, a manager would bring them in, we'd hear the music, would be so excited, and they'd say, we want to develop this organically and we want to do it independently first and then figure out what we do next. And I'd say, amazing, let's deliver this music, let's get it up, and we'd, use, we'd be prepared to use a court district, et cetera. And they'd say, well, we can't release these songs, we can only do cover songs. And I'd say, why? And they said, well, there's no way we'd be able to clear the rights. The publishers would never let us distribute this unless it was with a label, because they're not going to get paid otherwise. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, how... Can you imagine like hearing great music and being like, this makes so much sense. Like, let's get it out now. And then realizing that, no, we have to create traction with cover songs for this artist and then hopefully get the attention of a label and then spend six months negotiating a label deal. And by that point, you're maybe a year out even before they're ready to put the music out. But to me, the best music is made because that person has something they have to say at that moment and delaying for the world to hear that for a year and a half. I think totally changes the trajectory of that song's potential. And that was soul-crushing.
0: And it really limits what it means to be independent, because I think a lot of people had that understanding. But if you're needing to wait until publishing can work through for original content, then, yeah, it's going to be frustrating. So I think that having a tool like this does make things more real. And the more people that copy it, as frustrating as that might be, Imitation is the best form of flattery, and it does push the rest of the industry forward. Yeah.
1: And that, and that's why I don't really like, care about it in that way, because the more independent artists that are successful, the better it is for the rest of the industry, right? I think a high tide rises all ships, and I truly believe that because the things that we're trying to unwind in this incredibly opaque, complicated political business is so intense that I'll take all the help I can get right? If the mission that we're championing as part of our marketing messages is aligned with other businesses that we're competing with, now there's more people who are being educated, right? And one of the hardest things for us in 2015 was even convincing managers to do things independently, that they could do it themselves, and that they could put the resources together, right? And so the first couple of years, there was so much education, right? And we definitely benefited from the fact that our incentives and our strategy was aligned with the things that some of the bigger platforms were doing too, right? Um, whether it was companies like Spotify or SoundCloud or YouTube, everyone was really championing, educating existing established managers on how to develop talent independently. And so early on, it was taking meetings with big managers who represented huge artists, right? The Katy Perry's, the Bruno Mars, the Calvin Harris's is the world, And helping them realize that, oh, actually, for your next project, we can help support you if you want to try this independently, right? Um,
0: I assume that's how the Frank Ocean blonde thing came about.
1: Actually, no. Um, (laughs) That was income. Yeah. That was just tremendous amounts of luck and nurturing a relationship with his management team.
0: Because he had wanted out of his deal.
1: But we we really had no insight into any of that. We got a phone call that came from his manager and was like, can we put this up with you guys really quickly? And it was already up on Apple. We had nothing to do with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think what attracted us to them was that our mission was really clear, and that uh, we timing like we were down the street in terms of offices. We could run like literally, we ran over to his management team's company that day and helped get everything ingested. Um, but. I can't sort of say that like there was any strategic strategy behind them. We got really lucky.
0: <laughs> I would think that there was similar type well, with Childish Gambino. Was that inbound as well, or was that? That
1: was very different. Um, so his manager and I had known each other for a long time. Um, and one of the things that I realized back then was that many artists who had been independent initially and then signed with a major label – never properly registered their music. And so because they couldn't monetize it, right? they couldn't distribute it to Apple and YouTube, or sorry, Apple and Spotify, they put it up on SoundCloud and YouTube for free because then they didn't have to pay anyone. And that was the case with Donald, right? He put out his first few albums, his mixtapes, on SoundCloud and YouTube, and then he got signed and put out things more commercially. But when we looked at how the music was being monetized, we realized that it wasn't. And we saw, for example, the Freaks and and Geeks music video that had like at the time 30 million views on it. And I realized that there was no one claiming it. And so I called his manager and I said, hey, Chad, no one's claiming this music or this video, which means no one's making money on it. Can we do that? And he's like, I don't know. We don't have the rates clear to go. Let's do a case study. Get the rates clear for this one song. And since we can split the revenue to all the producers or sampler, writers, whatever, we can make it easier. And so they did some work on their end. He came back to us and said, okay, let's try this. And so we claimed that one record, and it started making real money. And I think they were like, oh, shit. Like We could probably make some good passive income on the music that's already out there. Um, Can you help us clean this up? Can you help us claim everything? So we spent the next year and a half working with their team to be able to claim as much of the original music that he put out independently to help him just make passive income
0: seems like that in a lot of ways is aligned with where stem sees itself both now and in the future you want to be able to serve those artists that have teams and being able to help push them forward and i think that speaks a lot to stem direct and the change that was made earlier in the summer with introducing that to the marketplace
1: yeah It was really a clarification, right? Um, We wanted to accomplish a couple of things um, in doing that announcement. The first one was that I think people were really confused what STEM was, who it was for, and what we could offer. And our big vision for the business was never relying on distribution. And so for us, it was important to start building recognition of STEM as an overarching company, and introducing products as services with their own name and their own definition, right? So STEM Direct was one of those. And what STEM Direct was meant to be was a distribution service on top of STEM the platform. Because the idea with STEM is to build various tools, some of which are services, some of which are technology, some of which are product offerings that can tailor to different segments of the creative class, specifically today's music, We definitely plan to go into other verticals and with different tools and needs for different types of artists, right? And this was the hardest part for us because uh, when you say that you're independent, so many artists can really be attracted to that, right? And we initially wanted to serve a very specific focus when we came out, right? And like you said, that was artists who were independent but had established management teams behind them. Because that was the types of people I knew how to work with best, right? I don't know how to work with DIY artists. That's not the world I come from. Um, And do I know how to work with superstar artists? Absolutely not, right? Like the core that I know is artists where there's management teams behind them where we can give advice for. Because we're not trying to be a full service distribution company that offers label services and all these other things. There's plenty of those out there. We're also not just the set it and forget it distribution service that's self-serve that a lot of the DIY artists or hobbyist musicians can use today because there's many of those out there, right? What we felt was really missing in the market was this middle segment that was being underserved, right? If I'm a manager and I'm about to develop my first independent artist and I need a little bit of hand-holding, who do I go to, right? And on top of that, if I'm established as an independent artist – and i don't need all the services but i need great technology i need clarity and i need a partner that'll pick up the phone and answer questions when i need their support i don't really have anyone to go to and you know we really wanted to be that home um and so uh we had to make a really hard decision because we were really lucky to get a lot of traction when we came out of the gate and we attracted a lot of artists to our platform But as we kept growing, we realized that there started being like this rift in terms of our user base. We had lots of artists who were using the platform that we're developing. And because their needs were very different and they didn't have a sophisticated team behind them, a lot of them were making mistakes in the upload process, right? They needed things changed, artwork changed, splits were wrong, metadata was wrong. And the cost of serving them was really high. And we didn't want to charge a flat fee, right, the way that other businesses do. Um, And so for them, we spun up a separate support team, and we served them with, you know, sort of at scale. But we hated that. Meanwhile, we had these other artists with management teams who had dedicated account managers who provided the service that sort of STEM Direct offers. And it wasn't nearly as scalable in the way that the DIY was. But we didn't want to have two different experiences in STEM. We wanted to really focus in and hone in on a segment that we could super serve. And so we—it took us a year and a half to really make the change.
0: So it was in the works for a while.
1: Oh my god, yeah. yeah. And we had so many different types of people helping to um, think through the problem because we really didn't want to have to like message a bunch of users and say, "Hey, we have to part ways." Um, that's gut-wrenching for so many different reasons. Um, but ultimately, in order for us to be able to continue to serve and build the product that we think could really move the market, we needed to make that sacrifice.
0: Um, so I guess looking back now, it's been five, six months since that happened and a lot of thought and planning leading up to that. Do you think there's anything you would change now looking back about how it was communicated, how you rolled it out?
1: Um I haven't really reflected on that too much, to be honest. I think that there's no easy way to answer that. And I personally called, I don't know, at least like 40 or 50 artists that I saw tweeting or um, messaging us just to sort of give them a little bit of insight into the direction we're heading. And I wish I could have broadcasted that message specifically but a lot of it is stuff that we're not ready to announce publicly but i think that when we do i hope that a lot of the artists who feel um betrayed by us will understand a little bit more um and it's never easy right like the last thing i wanted to do was disappoint someone we got some really heart-wrenching emails and as a team like our team here was so, like, took it so hard. It's not easy when, like, you're corresponding with, you know, the clients that you've been serving. And the thing here is, like, even though we had a support at STEM email, all the people on that team had personal names, and they know a lot of the artists, right? Like, one of the things we prided on was that we knew the people we were dealing with. We didn't just feel like we were behind a secret wall. Um, So it was really hard. It It was incredibly emotionally draining, we had like support conversations internally with each other, checking in on how we were doing emotionally and mentally. It was hard. It was one of the darkest times. Um, but I think what we got through with it is just knowing like where we want to be at the end of it and knowing that if we really want to make the change um, and make a big impact, we really want to have customers that love us. And I think the one thing that I really underestimated was how much of an impact we made in some people's careers and lives. And that, to me, was something I wish I would have done more digging in on, was on the customer experience and really trying to gauge how much we meant to them. Because honestly, I thought we were just another distributor service to so many of them, right? Like, why are they using us when they could just as easily be using Distrokid? So I didn't think so many people would be so upset.
0: It reminds me of what happened this past week. Did you hear with SoundCloud and the change that they had made? Mm -hmm. They're like gut-wrenching emails from users that are like, my whole life is dependent on this, so on and so forth. And you feel any type of kinship when you saw them making a business decision and then realizing the ramifications and the response after?
1: Yeah, I mean, the craziest thing for us was we had no idea Spotify was going to shut down its direct program right after us.
0: Right, right,
1: right. That was shocking. Um, before we made the change and the announcement—not more the change, but the announcement of Stem Direct—we watched what other, how other businesses handled it, right? And we actually talked to a number of people who worked at other distributors that shut down or were affected by that. And that's what really informed our approach. Like, we spent two months negotiating with other distributor platforms to see which one would give us the best experience. We weren't negotiating for deal terms. We were negotiating with how big of a team can you give us and how much technical resources are you willing to dedicate so that we have a seamless integration if we're going to move catalog over to you and refer you as a partner, right? And we and we doubled down with TuneCore cuz they sent their teams of people to our offices. For months leading up to it, we had weekly, biweekly calls setting up an integration so that we could do most of the heavy lifting for our customers. And the one thing we knew they cared about the most was losing stream counts or playlisting. And so we wanted to facilitate a seamless of a catalog transfer for these users as possible because we didn't want to abandon them. I think the thing that really upset me with the announcement was that people assumed and misunderstood and they thought that we were taking off. Their catalog that day. When in fact, we gave them three months' notice, and it was the first announcement of a three month journey of announcements that were to
0: follow. Right. I saw when people said that a few times, like they had said this on May 31st or whenever it was. Yeah, I saw that a few times with different people.
1: So in terms of what we do differently, I think we'd move that up in the email. We'd make it bigger that like nothing's happening today. We're just giving you a heads up that over the course of the next three months, you should be looking for a different partner. Here's some options. And here's what we'll do with you if you want to go with Tungor or whoever else it is. So I think we could have been clear about that for sure, like the higher key of information. Um, That's definitely one area.
0: Well, the good thing is that you're not solely leaving people out to dry completely. You have new services and things that are coming, like STEM Check, for example. Tell us more about that.
1: Um, STEM Check came out of a realization in conversations with our artists and realizing that, you know, if they start their careers on STEM and they gain a lot of traction – that inevitably they're going to get the attention of a major label or another major distributor who brings them a deal. And on the other side of it, having conversations with established artists who are part of the major record label system who actually have no idea what their catalog is worth. and they So they have no idea what they're giving up in exchange for that when they're reevaluating whether or not they want to stay with a label or not. And so while they have all these people around them, managers, business managers, lawyers who are involved in the negotiation and they're thinking through the deal terms um, and they have two offers that are side-by-side or even just one to consider, they're looking at it abstractly from like, are these terms as good as what I know I can get in the market for this person, right? But yet no one is actually writing a financial model to show the artist the financial impact of that decision. And so when I put myself in those shoes... And I think about, okay, well, when I went out to raise money in venture capital, I knew that was expensive money. I knew I'd be giving up a piece of this business in exchange for that. That's very different than bootstrapping it or raising money from independent investors or angels, right? And the only reason I got comfortable making that decision is because I got a pro forma, right? Someone modeled out for me for this much money and these terms, you're giving up this much equity, right? Right. No one does that for the artist. No one says to the artist, hey, here's what your catalog is worth today. Here's the deal terms. Here's what it looks like if you give up this percentage in exchange for this much money. And the thing that's the most convoluted in these deal terms is the recoupment, right? So if you're a young artist and your song's making 10 grand a month and someone comes to you and says, hey, here's a half a million dollar advance, you're like, oh, that's awesome, Right? But what does that mean over five or seven years if that's the duration of the contract? What does that mean if you're doing that on a 50 50 net profit share, right? Sounds pretty good, sounds favorable, sounds like a JV. But how does it recoup? What are the fees that are taken out? Is it recouping against both shares or is it just recouping against my 50%? Right? Like all of these have incredibly, um, incredible impl- like, implications to that. No one's showing them that. So we decided to. Like, I have a strong finance team and data team. And we informally had artists come through the office. And in conversations, I would just say to them, hey, just come in. We'll do it for you. Let us build you a financial model so you can evaluate the terms. And with enough interest, we decided to just open it up to everyone.
0: And hearing that story, it made me think of that YouTube clip that was floating around a month or two ago. It was with uh, Jason Weaver, the guy that had done the Lion King. He did the voice of Simba. This was like back in the '90s, and he had sung all the songs. And they had offered him at the time when he was a kid, said, "Hey, we can either give you this two million dollar advance, or you have royalties on this." And of course, everyone opens up their eyes. It's like, okay, what? You're like ten years old. You're getting this. And then I believe his mom was the one that was like, "Hold up, no." Let's run these numbers and do it. And it spread a lot because it's obviously, yes, he's more than made up his money now, but it highlighted two things. One, that kind of story makes highlights because you don't hear about it happening that often in that type of decided way. So it just speaks to how rare that is. So the fact that more artists have that. So it's not just like, oh, these anecdotal like wonder kid type stories. No, there's actual services out here that will do this for you.
1: Yeah. And I think that, listen, not all label deals are bad, right? And I actually don't think every artist can do it on their own. But what I do think is important is that there's a level setting of understanding, right? To me, the best and most fair negotiations are when people walk in with the same amount of information. And where I feel like most artists have been disadvantaged around that is that unlike the label that's modeling the advance, offering that has analysts sitting on it and understanding like the risk profile and the payback period and the cash on cash return. No one's turning that around to the artist and saying, by the way, here's how we're thinking about this. Here's our cost against it. And here's how we're going to recoup it. They're just giving the artist paperwork that's like this thick. And I'm showing something that's like this thick as the yellow pages and hoping that their lawyers or agents or managers or business managers translate it for them in a way that they can understand which, first of all, that even feels like so um, – it's like such a shitty thing. It's like, yeah, we'll, we'll dumb it down for you. It's like, no, artists are smart. Like They know their business when someone gives them the data in dollars. And we just want to do that um, because, truthfully, like some of these label deals, when we've modeled it out, it's actually a good thing for the artist, right? It's like, hey, you don't want to have to hire a staff of people to do this work and the advance is for this much money up front – Based on your current trajectory, you know if you don't feel like you know what it takes to get your career to the next level on your own and you need someone else to do it, but you don't have the resources to hire or manage a team, take a label deal. Take that deal, but know that this is what you're giving up, right? And know that this is how long it's going to take for you to recoup. And if you assume you grow by 50%, 10%, 100%, 300%, here's how that changes. And if you're willing to take that risk, great, but now you know.
0: And in terms of labels themselves, and obviously knowing that some of your artists will stay on STEM as long as they choose to, but there's a number of them that most likely, well, not most likely, but a number of them will choose to move on. With those specifically, I'd assume that based on your own relationships and your team's insights, there's certain labels where it's like, yeah, no, go work with that label. They're good folks. I trust them versus, eh, I don't know if that's what you want to do. Knowing that so much of the work ends up being data driven, when a lot of those types of decisions about like which label would you be a better fit for are a bit more qualitative. How do you go about that in terms of guiding artists who might be ready to take that next step?
1: It's really hard uh, to deny when you feel like the person across from you. Their vision aligns with yours. There's nothing more powerful than that. So first and foremost, do you have chemistry with the person who's pursuing you? Do you actually align with the things they want for your career? So I think that in a process of being pursued, it's really important to spend time with the person who's going to be your direct ER or the person who's going to be your project manager at that label and make sure that's aligned because so much of the frustration that I hear about comes from creative misalignment. So I think that's first and foremost, right? And I, think there's so and, and I think the other thing is like, what do you really need out of the label? Is it A&R or is it marketing, right? And it, or is it marketing on a national level or is it on a global level? And so I think artists need to do a little bit of introspection and figure out like, well, what are they looking for? Because that'll change what kind of a label you go with. Um, if you really need real A&R, then let's find the person that you connect with. But if you are A&Ring the project yourself and you have something that's ready to go and what you need is marketing and promotion, then go and find the label. But don't be talking to the A&R guy. Go talk to the marketing team, right? So I think it's just helping them navigate the relationships and helping them think about it from a place of I'm the CEO of my business and I need to hire a team. Right. So, what's the job that I'm looking for them to do? And then who's the best person for that job?
0: Right. Because a lot of that is both the confidence building and the empowerment, right? I think a lot of people see labels as still, they're going to put me on. So, it puts you in this like employee, employer type relationship where it's like, no, this is your personal board of directors. This is your team that you have to assemble and making sure that they're specific about that goes a long way.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's the thing is like so many artists feel like this tug, like this um, push and pull of like, they don't know when it's them to make the decision or when they need to rely on someone else, right? And what we'd love to be able to convey more consistently and at scale is that, no, you're the core of it. Like you are the visionary, you're the CEO and everyone around you is there to help support that. And that's not to say they're here to serve you. Their job is to execute and to support and bring that vision to life. Um, and I think if you can change the perspective and the mindset, now you can, now you can actually change the way they go about their business. Because now they're not looking at it like, I need to attach myself with a big brand name label so that people take me seriously, right? I think I've personally been shot by that so many times because I look at a resume and I look at people from Google and all these other great companies and I'm like, yes, I want to build my team with these big brand names and people who come from these big companies. But then they end up not doing the job that I need them to do, but I've been lured over by like the sticker value. And that's the worst place to find yourself in. And what I've learned for myself as a business owner is figure out and get really clear on what the job is that that needs to be done, and then look for the best person to fill that who genuinely is excited about pushing that mission forward and bringing your vision to life and get that person right? Figure out then out of that pool of candidates, like who comes from the brand name that you feel like your brand is best aligned with, or that best represents the team that you want to build. And I hate when artists are like, I'm being chased by Republic and Capitol and Atlantic. And it's like, that's great. But like, what do you need? Who are you talking to? Right? And you're more likely to fail inside those places if you don't know what you need support with.
0: Right. It's almost the equivalent of like, oh, I'm interviewing at Google. Well, what role are you interviewing for? And they're like, oh, well, you know, they're bouncing me around. And it's like, eh, sounds like you should probably figure that out.
1: Yeah. It's like, I'm hiring someone out of Google to be an engineer, but you go and hire the person that was an ad sales rep. It's like, they're not going to be able to yeah. build anything, right?
0: You had mentioned your role as a business owner specifically, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that from a personal perspective. You've gotten a lot of recognition as a woman in the music industry, and there's not a lot of you in leadership roles. How has that shaped your work, your perspective on your, your place in the industry?
1: Um, it's a really great year. Like, there are so many women that are being profiled at, uh, in the business and like the year of magazine covers are amazing with Audrey Gelman, who's the founder of um The Wing co-working space, being on the cover of Inc. magazine Pregnant, or uh the founders of the two or three different companies that went public this year. I think um not Katrina like what's her name? Um, From Stitch Fix. Katrina Lake. Oh, it is is Katrina Lake. Got it. Sorry, my brains.
0: And then Glossier. Emily Weiss. Valued over a billion this year.
1: Huge, right? Like, it's a great year for us. Um,
0: And I I believe today was when the Billboard uh, Power uh, Women in the Industry came out for 2019.
1: Yep. For 2019. That list. And then I think Hollywood Reporter had their version of it also this month. Um, So across the board, I think that there's a shift to really recognizing women in business because there's this notion of like, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Right. And we're seeing that across all these industries, which is great. Um, I've actually unintentionally built an incredibly diverse team at this business that I'm incredibly proud of. Um, I don't think I tried that or did it intentionally, but like most of our board and investors are female. Right. That's amazing from the top. Um, The executive leadership team is 50-50. The engineering team is 50-50 men and women. Uh, across all these different aspects of the business, we did an analysis on diversity metrics, and we're actually really strong, unintentionally, but also intentionally. Um,
0: intentionally meaning that you made an active push in terms of your recruitment, that you want to make sure this team can maintain its diversity?
1: I can't say that I'm the one who's been the pushing for it. I hired this woman, Zoe, to be our head of people operations and director of people operations and she's very intentional about it and what she's amazing at is finding and recruiting people from not traditional channels and making sure that when we're evaluating people we're eliminating biases right so the way everything from the way that we write our job descriptions she's been so intentional about making sure we don't use language that intimidates women or intimidates other types of profiles of uh potential candidates and that when we're looking for roles that we're not just posting it on our job board but we're trying to send it out to various like facebook groups of women or of you know there's so many also um cultural groups as well like latinas and music or various other like organizations and making sure that they hear about the jobs So, I think a big part of it's just being intentional about your strategy. But for me, it was like, how do I find someone who has really strong core values about this and empower them to own this? And it's really Zoe who's just been doing such an incredible job. I think the part that is always challenging is it's great if you can get them in the door, but how do you retain
0: the inclusion aspect? And the
1: inclusion aspect. And I think that that's part of the conversation that isn't as loud as it should be across the whole entire business. Has
0: that been a challenge internally? for you here?
1: Um, it's something we talk about a lot. I think for us on the inclusion side, we've been really, cha- it's been challenging for us to retain older employees. So ageism is actually a big factor for us that we're trying to get better at.
0: And you think, is that driven by the culture of people not feeling like they fit in with the younger culture? It
1: could be that. It could be also that, you know, startups are unstable. Um, there's a variety of factors for that. But it's something we at least think about, right? And I think that's part of the conversation that's really important.
0: And does a lot of your your perspective on this also look at how you may interact with the broader community of the industry, whether it's, because I'm sure there's probably two hats of this, right? There's what you make sure happens within this building, but then also when you're outside of the building and you're interacting with the industry, whether it's representation or making sure that certain messages are being delivered to audiences.
1: Yeah, And also, who are the people that are representing STEM, right? Um, Because we don't want to be hiding behind the technology, we want our team out there. Um, And now with the STEM direct model, every single client of ours has a direct account manager, and we want them to interact, not just online, but in person. We want the people that we map them to to really get each other, right? So for us to be successful in representing a broad genre of artists and a broad representation of artists, we need to make sure our account management team reflects that. Right. Right. And so when we hire, we want to make sure we have people who are not only domain experts, but cultural experts. Because so much of what it takes to like grow music also relies on someone understanding the cultural implications of what the message is and why it's resonating and how to get it out there and how to explore it
0: with the artist. So we're getting to the tail end. So we do have a few lightning questions. Hopefully these are quick, but I am interested in this based on things you said earlier. So you mentioned in one of your answers that Music is what STEM focuses on today, but there could be other aspects down the road. What does it look like? What are those other aspects?
1: Yeah, I think the way we'd probably get into it is through music, right? The reason why music is so exciting is because I think musicians are the most multi-hyphenate creators. They go across verticals. They create video. They create um, film. They do obviously so much branding and e-commerce. It's a huge monetization vehicle, um, they're getting more and more into e-gaming and all these other places. So I think the natural extension for us in the beginning is probably around e-commerce. And the way we would be experimenting with that is by um, things related to merch, to be vague.
0: Makes sense. And with that, hearing that, it makes me think a lot about how United Masters positions their own business as well. And looking at the two of you, both... Similar business models, 10%. If an artist is interested in you, an artist is interested in a United Masters, what's your pitch? How do you sell that person to choose you over them? You
1: know what's really funny? We never compete. It's really rare that we're talking to an artist who's considering both. Um, and Steve Stout and I actually have a great relationship. When he was in town last time, he came over for breakfast and I cooked breakfast for him in my kitchen. Um, we trade information a lot. Before he announced United Masters, we had a lot of conversations about what STEM was doing, what he wanted to do. We're approaching the problem from completely different angles. I'm really approaching it from how do people get paid? How do they become more literate about their finances? And he's approaching it about how do we figure out how to enable brands and artists to connect so that they can grow with each other, right? And so while both of us do distribution as a way to get there, we're fundamentally solving very different problems. And so I think the types of artists that are attracted to us again, are slightly different because they have different objectives. And
0: and talking to him, too, about this, I do think that the branding aspect of this is key. And even just how they promote themselves on social media and the type of partnerships they've done Mm -hmm. with the NBA, I think a lot of it speaks to that same type of ecosystem. Yeah. Did you do a Spotify-wrapped? Do you do you use Spotify?
1: Oh my god, of course. It, it's it's so random because so much of what I listen to on Spotify is artists that we're starting to work with. So yeah. some of it reflects my personal taste, and a lot of it's just like my use of Spotify. I actually realized this year that I need to have two separate accounts <laughs> because otherwise, like I'm the algorithmic stuff is so bizarre for me. Um, my number one song that I listen to the most, my top three is actually pretty reflective because these three songs I listen to so much. One is Dance Monkey by Tones and I. I'm obsessed with that song. Okay. That is one of those few songs that like hit me in the heart and was like got me to want to move and like I love hearing that and dancing to it in my car in the bathroom when I'm getting ready. Um, The next two are actually STEM artists that I love a lot. Um, One is Shai Martin. I think she's one of the best songwriters that's coming out right now. And her music is so energetic and lyrical and the tone of her voice is beautiful Um, so her music, another one is an artist we've just become friends with, Emerald. Uh, that song Honey Bee is so damn catchy and I've been listening to it a ton. Um, so those are my top three. Nice. Also ironic that it's all three female pop artists.
0: Yeah. Nice. Favorite genre music, would you say?
1: Uh, Deep House.
0: Deep House? Yes. Okay. Nice. Favorite artist?
1: Favorite Deep House artist is somewhere between, um... Guy Gerber and Richie Hahn. I've traveled thousands of miles to see Richie Hahn play in like Cartagena when I was nowhere near there. <laughs> but I grew up in Detroit and like the the sort of like house deep house scene is the scene I partied in and grew up in. You right. know what I mean? Like so mm-hmm. that's kind of the music that like brings you back to that time and I really enjoy.
0: Do you have any affinity to Detroit artists?
1: I do. Um, we work with Garrett Kohler and the guys at Assemble Sounds who are doing something so incredible. Um, are you familiar with them at all?
0: I've heard the name, but not, I'm not familiar with their music though.
1: So it's actually, so it's not their music. It, uh, Garrett took over an old church in downtown Detroit that's across from the old uh, train station that's now going to become a Ford plant. And he created a sanctuary for artists. So it was this dilapidated church and he's been renovating it for the last couple of years. But alongside the renovations, he's opened up recording studios downstairs. The main area of the church is a big seating area where there's at night performances and also like educational seminars for artists. And during the day, it's like a co-working space where people are sitting in like the uh, the seats and working on their laptops and on the side because it was a classroom upstairs at the church. Like there was a school in it, so they've turned the classrooms in those areas into recording studios. And just the talent that's coming out of there is so amazing.
0: Nice. I thought you said Garrett Cole at first. That's where I think yeah. my mind, I was like, oh, yeah. And then you clarify later on. And I was like, OK, that makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, any Big Sean?
1: Yeah, of course.
0: OK. All right. Just checking.
1: Big Sean, Carl Craig, Madonna. Ray.
0: Yep, of course. Nice. So last question for you. Do you have any advice that you often give artists that you feel like is a misconception or something that they would know? What is one thing that you think this audience should know?
1: Honestly, understand what your catalog is worth. You've got to know your asset value. Ask all the questions until you get those answers. Um, and then if you're not getting those answers, keep asking, like, why are they not giving them to you? Um, other than that, trust your instinct and your gut. Like, that is so strong and you've developed it over so many years. Um, it's funny, we always joke when we talk about data here and we evaluate things and like thinking about it as like a pie chart. And at any given moment, we sometimes ask, like, how much of this decision is going to be driven by data and how much of it's going to be driven by FOMO. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, it's always more FOMO than it is data. And just remember that, right? And so when an artist is thinking about, like, how do I gain the system? What do I do? How do I grow? Take yourself out of it and put yourself in the shoes of the fan. When you discover music and when you have someone you love and admire and you follow, what do you do, right? And what are those actions? And then figure out a way that you get your fans to do that and listen to them.
0: No, that makes a ton of sense. Because decision fatigue will affect anyone, and especially if you're running your own show. It's going to... Straffle and it will struggle you if you aren't just deliberate. And sometimes you just got to go with your gut.
1: Yeah. And all these platforms are going to emerge and build tools and change the system for a little bit. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's all cyclical. There's nothing better than getting out there and getting there and getting in front of your fans. So whatever you're doing, if it's not getting you out in front of your fans in person, you're not converting enough of them to be hardcore. So the focus on playlisting and social media and all of that's cool and great and it's additive and it's supportive when you spark the flame but there's nothing better than finding your fans in the real world.
0: Agreed. And I think that's a good note to end on. Milana, it's been a pleasure. Same here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. If you use Apple Podcasts, please go rate and review. That helps continue to boost capital Podcast in the rankings. And also, please go to the Trapital.co website. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O. There's a ton of great content there. So please check out the articles, sign up for the newsletter, and I'll see y'all next time.